There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Juliet Jakes on her collection of short stories, Variations. Juliet Jakes is a writer and filmmaker based in London, the author of Trans, a memoir, and now a short story collection, Variations, which we're going to be talking about today. Juliet, welcome back to Little Atoms. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me back again. Um, glad last time was, wasn't so bad that you couldn't have me back. But we did have to wait six years, to be fair. <laughs> it takes a while <laughs> to write a book. Yeah. Tell us how you would describe this collection, first of all. Right. So Variations is a collection of 11 short stories, which broadly speaking, tell a sort of potted and poetic history of trans and non-binary people in the United Kingdom from the early Victorian period to the present, spanning a period from between, uh, I think the first one set in 1846 and the most recent one is set in 2014. And they are set in a variety of different places so several are set in London some of them cut between London and other places like Blackpool or Norwich but there are stories set in Liverpool, Manchester, Brighton, Cardiff and Belfast for example and every story has a different set of characters there aren't really any repeating protagonists so every story has different characters who have different uh, personalities and backgrounds and crucially gender identities and they're written in a variety of different forms which I try to make as much as possible appropriate to the time so for example the first story is a secret diary that is rediscovered later because it would not have been possible to write publicly about any sort of um, gender variance at the time the 1920s story is an academic paper kind of unearthing some archive case notes and contextualizing them for present day readers. The 1950s story is a chapter from a memoir because that was round about the time that transsexual people and transsexual women in particular started using memoir to document their experiences to counter sensationalistic media proposals. The 1990s story is a film script reflecting the fact that there are a lot of uh, British and uh, international films about trans people during the 1990s. And the 2010 story is a set of blog posts that are sort of interacting with Twitter, although I decided not to try to depict Twitter directly in the text. So hopefully that gives you uh, some idea of what the project is. And obviously, you know, you've, you've got to start somewhere, but let's talk about why particularly that Victorian era 
because I guess this is the time when, because of like Victorian morality, the law gets more punitive. And I mean, I don't know if this is actually true. You can tell me, but you know, we have this idea that you know, in the past, the Regency period or the Restoration or whatever, people would have been a lot freer in their expression of gender. Um, I mean, that's not necessarily true. I mean, there's an allusion in the first story to Mother Clap's Molly House. Uh-huh. Uh, the Molly Houses were these venues, uh, mostly in, in London, which is on its way to becoming the first industrial city. It's not really an industrial city at that point yet, but places where men would meet, have sex with each other and dress with women. And most famously, there was a venue known as Mother Clap's Molly House in Hoburn, which got raided by the old parish constables who were the precursors of the police. The police didn't exist in its current form uh, as yet. Uh, so it got raided and 40 men got arrested and three of them were, were hanged for sodomy. So uh, it's it's not necessarily that it was more tolerant at all. It's just that the sort of networks of maybe surveillance and of recording these things didn't really exist in the same way. I decided not to start the story with, say, Mother Claps, Molly House, which I could have done because I thought the historical narrative I'm working to, it's the one that Susan Stryker lays out in her Transgender History as published in the US in 2008. And she talks about a process of industrialization which let people move, break the old feudal bonds with their old kind of village networks, move to the city, have a degree of anonymity, Uh, And that let them do things like publicly cross-dress. And throughout the 19th century, there are a number of cases of mostly male-to-female cross-dressers. Where there are cases of female-to-male cross-dressers, it's usually assumed that they're doing so in order to be employed or to do something they want to do, like join the army. There's an expediency to it. Whereas when male-to-female cross-dressers are detected, it's assumed they're doing so because they're sodomites and they want to, you know, kind of trick or lure men into having sex with them. Uh, So throughout the 19th century and, you know, the early and mid-19th century, there are a number of cases of men dressing as women, going to certain spots around London, being arrested, being tried. And there wasn't a specific law against cross-dressing or sort of gender-variant behaviour. So they were usually charged with kind of vagrancy or soliciting or breach of the peace or, or something Charges that often didn't really stand up. And usually what happened was they said, I was just doing this for a laugh or a lark, or I was having a bet with my friend that I couldn't pass undetected. I'm very sorry, governor, I won't do it again. Uh, And maybe they would give a fake name or something as well. And usually they would get away with a fine, a slap on the wrist, and maybe some level of, um, of public humiliation. It would usually be written up in in the papers, or at least a lot of these cases were, because they're the ones I've managed to find and base the first story on. So the first story, yes, set in 1846, and it does bring in the Metropolitan Police, who were founded in 1829. So brings in these sort of changes in policing. But as I said, at the time, there's no concrete law against this sort of cross-dressing. So the first story takes place in that context. The second story is set in 1895 in a sort of Bloomsbury-based literary circle who are personally acquainted with uh, with Oscar Wilde. And indeed, the protagonist in, in the second story is, again, a male-to-female cross-dresser who's moved from Manchester to London. It's quite young, wants to be a writer, but also wants to organise these drag balls, which is something that was happening more and more towards the end of the 19th century. Uh, but the crucial thing in the interim is that you've had the Bolton and Park case in 1870 to 1871. Bolton and Park were these two uh, female personators, as they would have been known at the time, uh, who were frequently seen out and about in London dressed as ladies, 
they were arrested in 1870 and they were suspected to be at the center of a kind of cross-class sodomite ring. There's a lot of mounting anxiety in uh, Victorian Britain as the empire grows about the moral hygiene of the working classes and about the aristocracy corrupting them, as well as about the middle classes who they're always more concerned about. So Belton and Parker tried for cross-dressing, basically, but they haven't really got a proper thing to charge them with. Uh, So they get this dishonourable discharge. The judge basically says, we'd love to do you for this, but we can't find anything, so we're going to have to let you go. And then 14 years later, the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885 makes gross indecency, public or private, between uh, adult males, uh, whether they're consenting or not, punishable with two years hard labour. So the second story really reflects the fact that there is this legal change. So the kind of discourse I'm looking at is this discourse of industrialization and then public transgressions, changes to the law to address that as far as the authorities see it. And then the next story is really about, third story is really about the rise of sexology as a kind of um, organized way of countering this legal suppression. So the sexologists are saying, look, actually, you know, these people are not just criminals or deviants. We're going to speak to them and find out why they do what they do and build these new identity categories out of that. So that, that's the first three stories of the book are really showing that process. Well, that third one is also, I mean, that period of time, as well as doing that, it is the sort of medicalization, the DSMization of trans culture, I guess. Absolutely. And in the third story, it's called Reconfiguration. And it's the only story, I think, that has a real historical character at its core. There are a couple of stories that have quite close approximations of real people as their protagonists. But this is the only one that has a uh, just uses a real person, which is the um, the British sexologist Havelock Ellis, who towards the end of his life, I think he was in his 60s or 70s at this point, wrote a book called Ianism, which was um, his theories about why transgender people existed, basically. Uh, he was kind of working in the shadow of the great German sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld, uh, based in Berlin until the, the Nazis uh, came in and, and um, brutally closed down on his Institute for Sexual Science and Hirschfeld died in exile uh, in 1935. And Ellis had a level of competition with the Germans. Magnus Hirschfeld had come up with this category of transvestite and uh, someone who maybe had some erotic drive to wear the clothing of the opposite sex. And Ellis's theory was more that people uh, people cross-dressed or maybe sought out surgery uh, in order to become the objects of their own desire. And, you know, Ellis sort of, um, his theory didn't really work so well. And um, this story, Reconfiguration, is written by an academic who has discovered a hidden case story, which they think might have explained why Ellis doesn't really make these theories stand up. And indeed says, you know, if you read Ianism's published in 1928, it's quite a flat text. You get the feeling that Ellis was writing it, already feeling it wasn't really working. These categories didn't really work. And of course, what happens uh, at the same time and the story deals with is the pushing towards the first, I guess what we'd now call gender confirmation surgeries, which, you know, obviously then lead to a separation of the categories of like transvestite, cross-dresser and transsexual and these different delineations that kind of leave Ellis's theories behind so yeah the the third story is sort of dealing with with one of these sort of categorizations that falls by the wayside and what's also fascinating in that story is you're talking about one of the ways in which his theory fails is through basically the erasure of trans men which is it's sort of ironic because obviously right now one of the the sort of popular moral panics is around the erasure of lesbians it's like it's completely turned that on its head 
Yes, but I mean, a lot of people in trans circles would tell you that trans men are really underrepresented in this sort of moment of trans visibility as well. So I think that's also important to consider. I mean, Ellis's book, Ellis's Ianism, only talks to one person who would have been assigned female at birth. So it it talks to a cis woman who sort of basically says, sometimes I dream of being a man and then basically Ellis says to her look maybe you just need to have a word with your husband and she does and that kind of sorts everything out so you know Ellis was not very good at dealing with people assigned female at birth full stop so in a case it was ever thus I think certainly Ellis's earlier work on uh, inversion as he called it at the time dealt far more with people assigned male at birth and assigned female as well so um so yeah maybe maybe that's you know it's partly a problem of um of sexism running through the sort of sexological establishment uh, and indeed you know most of the pioneering uh, sexologists nearly all of them I think were men so that's that's not that surprising really. I must say I'm, I'm sort of in awe at how you've made an absolutely convincing academic paper into a really readable short story. Yeah I mean it's not based on any of my own academic papers so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, let's just talk again I mean you mentioned about the idea of using the different forms throughout the book and trying to do them do it in a way that they were contemporary with the times of the stories that you were creating the other thing of course it does as again I think you alluded to already was just this idea that it's what you're doing here is although through fiction obviously but creating something of a history of trans people that doesn't really exist or exists in the shadows it is not just court reports and crime columns in newspapers or yeah I mean we're sort of trying to trying to find the places that the sources I had couldn't reach so I think probably the first story is is a really good example of this called Night at the Theatre so this is the one set in 1846 and in it like I said it's a secret diary of two male to female cross-dressers one of whom is much more driven to cross-dress than the other and James stroke Jennifer finds a brief snippet in a newspaper it's a real um a real case that I just use verbatim um of somebody who's caught cross-dressing in London and goes to court and just says oh it was a lark and basically gets a small fine and a discharge and obviously in the source you know all that's reported is the testimony in the court where the defendant has to say look I was just this was just a lark because to admit any compulsion to cross-dress would have been you know, possibly fatal and certainly ruinous. So I looked at that and thought, well, look, if that was me, I would say, oh, this was just a lark. But I would know that I had a deep desire to to cross-dress and maybe a, a wishing that I'd been born as a woman. And I thought, how can I fill that in? And that secret diary format obviously let me fill that in and let me bring even bits of my own sort of consciousness and experience, you know, my own experience of when I started to transition or earlier going out in Brighton dressed as a woman and dealing with, you know, threats of violence and public ridicule, all these things. Uh, but obviously the stakes are raised with the possibility of arrest for doing this in, in the 1840s. Um, so that was that was one way that, you know, maybe an official uh, nonfiction history would struggle to get to those places but you know fiction of course has speculation and invention and imagination built into it so you know there's this sort of postmodern approach to history uh, that says you can't transpose identities onto people who precede them and that sort of combined with this kind of pincer movement that in the past stopped people like my protagonist in a night at the theater from being out as a like 
trans person or proto-trans person and, you know, present day prejudice that does all it can to say to people, no, you haven't got a history, so you shouldn't have a future either. Again, I, th- I think fiction was, was an interesting way of, of dealing with that problem. This is literally the idea that, you know, if you can't name a thing, you couldn't have been it. So like whenever you look at historical examples of people who were cross-dressing, people will say, well, you know, they can't have been, they can't have been trans because the actual concept of being trans had not been invented yet. Yeah. Which is obviously ludicrous. Yeah. The concept exists because people needed it to exist. Yeah. And, you know, the same way that the development of surgeries happens because people wanted it, you know. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Juliet Jakes and we're talking about her collection of short stories, Variations. And just thinking back on, on what you were saying just then about the before we broke about the, the first story, Juliet. And one of the things I wanted to talk about, about the the second story, which is the, the Yellow Book Group story, is that, again, this is it's a memoir written about a cross-dressing man who the narrator of this story, the writer of this memoir, is obviously involved in the same world. He goes to the same groups, he knows the same people, he even goes to the party that is arranged and is busted in the story. But he's obviously being very coy about it. He wants us to know that he is almost a disinterested observer on the outside rather than a participant. Yeah, I mean, every story in the collection has a little preamble, which sort of tells you which archive it's been found in and what the circumstances of the text creation are known. So in the preamble to this story, you're told that we don't know who the narrator is, they're almost certainly somebody to do with the yellow book, but maybe not any of the authors who are named in the text, and quite a few of them are. But, you know, the narrator is writing 20 years after the events described, and it's not said in that preamble, but when I was writing 
the story my my conception was that the narrator was dying and so you know didn't fear being done for gross indecency or for publishing obscenity as a result of publishing this text so yeah that's that's the kind of perspective that story is coming from yeah but you know obviously all the stories come from different perspectives and as the stories go on more and more it's more a case of the contemporary trans people telling their own stories and i think actually from the 1950s story onwards to the first post-war story it's always the case that the trans people are telling their own stories and not having someone else tell them for them I want to talk about the story of the exhibition next. Um, the protagonist of this story, Julian Cooper, a cross-dressing woman who has done exactly what you described in the first half and has dressed as a man to join the army to, and has been in Palestine in the sort of pre-war period and has come back and has been disowned by a family and disinherited. And we basically meet her in the story, being in an exhibition, like a, a ostensibly a freak show in Blackpool in the early 1930s and I'm wondering if this is one of the ones that you were talking about that's loosely based on a real person it's quite closely based on a real person who was uh, Colonel Victor Barker um, who was a sort of quite aristocratic assigned female at birth sort of as an adult lived as a man got married got done for perjury uh, and got done for marrying a woman who they're in love with uh, never identified as a man and you know even though surgery of a sort you know the first reassignment techniques were done on trans men in Britain in the mid-30s so it was available to Barker but Barker didn't pursue reassignment in that way but was in and out of prison and did get put in this kind of exhibition in Blackpool in 1937 I think Uh, and I just decided to change the details of the story just ever so slightly I mean just to, to give myself a bit more room and maybe I could have just made it a story of Victor Barker But I want to sort of give the impression that this actually could have happened to any trans man at that time. You know, he probably wouldn't have got sent to prison, partly because there wasn't the equivalent of the same like gross indecency laws as there were against like people assigned male. But nonetheless, there would have been, you know, huge amounts of kind of like public humiliation, media intrusion and just indignity uh, that would have come with with social exclusion. But yeah, this is quite closely based on, uh, on Victor Barker. Yeah. And he's charged with perjury, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, no, quite a lot of the details are are the same. I enjoyed the, the the light allusions to Harold Davidson, one of my uh, one of my great heroes, the Vicar of Stiffkey. What got yes, I mean that's a that's a very sad story. Um, but yeah, there are there are the odd allusions to him. Yes. <laughs> And then I wanted to talk about one of the stories, The Forgotten Stars of the White Star, which is um, set in a, a Liverpool drag bar at the at the sort of time of, well, I mean, a decade after the Wolford Report, at the time of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in 1967, but is presented as a newspaper article interview as a sort of commemoration around the time of Section 28. So like, you know, a good 20 years after that. And again, there's Section 28 crops up in a couple of the stories, which seems, again, rather timely as we seem to be going through, in a lot of ways, a version of of Section 28 in the media right now. Not least about, you know, a lot of people seem to be concerned, have very real concerns, Juliet, about the safeguarding of children. Legitimate concerns, I keep Legitimate concerns is the phrase, yeah, which again was something that was very much obviously you know, about the teaching of homosexuality in schools and stuff. But, you know, the idea of the safeguarding of children was obviously a very a very real concern of Section 28 as well. And it, it seems to be ever-present. 
Yeah, I mean, in in some ways, this book is a history of forms of suppression. And, you know, you get, you know, like in the first story, you get, as I said, those those use of existing laws around breach of the peace or soliciting as a way of suppressing gender variant behaviour. And then you get the Criminal Law Amendment Act, which runs all the way through to the 1960s, finally repealed. And then in the 80s, you get the moral panic around HIV and AIDS, gay men in particular, and Section 28. So that's like another form of, of suppression that stays in place until 2003. And as you very rightly point out, the media have been building a big backlash against trans people in particular, which of course is covered in my final story, the one set in Belfast called Tipping Point. And the tipping point being this idea uh, in America that the trans civil rights movement had reached a level of visibility of representation of organization and the securing of its rights that meant it could no longer be stopped. Uh, which I think a lot of people around the world and certainly a lot of um, would-be liberal uh, columnists and newspaper people in Britain saw as a challenge. So Tipping Point really, by taking us back to 2014, tries to look at the origins of that kind of moral panic. And you can set Tipping Point against the story set in the 1980s in Manchester, never going underground, where a young trans woman who hasn't transitioned yet but she's telling the story from the year 2000, by which time she has transitioned. But in uh, in Never Going Underground, she's telling the story of what's happened in the 1980s, uh, how it has particularly targeted gay men and to a lesser extent lesbians, and how, you know, within that community, there's a certain level of kicking down. So kind of trans people find themselves with a quite ambivalent and awkward relationship to that organising where they are supposed to put their own concerns aside for the sake of the larger LGBT community that doesn't always sort of appreciate them or make space for them. So yeah, certainly in the the sort of last section of the book, really, section 28 is um is quite a big, big theme. And I think the importance of it in, you know, sort of suppressing gender variant identities is uh, is very present. You mentioned in the first half the writer Susan Stryker, but I just mm. wanted to talk about other writers that might have been a particular influence on your writing in this book. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, the influences on this book are quite wide and varied. I mean, I have written an awful lot about the wave of 1990s uh, and 2000s trans theorists who are mostly but not exclusively North American. Uh, so Susan Stryker would definitely be one of them. Also, uh, Sandy Stone, Kate Bornstein, Leslie Feinberg, Ricky Ann Wilchins, um, Vivian Namas, Julia Serrano. All of these people actually sort of theorise trans and non-binary identities, play a crucial role in allowing communities to form artistic communities as well as physical ones so zine cultures filmmaking basically gave us permission to write about ourselves and think about ourselves almost as a genre um, and so think about ourselves as sort of texts and experiences and narratives as well as, you know, people. And so they opened a lot of doors for me, those theorists. I mean, in terms of sort of form and style, a lot of my influences were kind of queer women and men. Uh, more than more than trans fiction writers, because, you know, I actually first conceived this book in about 2003. Uh, and I did it precisely because I didn't really see uh, I was reading an awful lot of uh, modernist and postmodernist and contemporary fiction at that point and poetry and drama and didn't really see any openly trans writers anywhere. I can't really think of anyone. But I was interested in people like Jean Genet, Jean Cocteau, uh, obviously Oscar Wilde, who comes up in these texts, as well as sort of South American writers like Severo Sardoy and Copi, who would, you know, some of them, particularly Copi, Sardoy and Genet, put you know, kind of cross-dressing into their plays and prose. 
uh, were quite formally experimental, maybe made some sort of link between the formal experimentation and the kind of gender play of of their characters. Uh, so they gave me a lot of uh, a lot of license to write as well. Uh, I mean, also an influence on the form. I published a book in 2007 on the um, English, I would say, sort of neo-modernist author Raina Heppenstall, who experimented very interestingly with sort of first-person narration and, and how to sort of structure a, a story around a first-person protagonist. Uh, so he was a big influence along with uh, writers like Anne Quinn and B.S. Johnson, who were doing similar things in the 60s and 70s. And Anne Quinn in particular, there was quite a queer element to her writing often, uh, you know, really kind of dark and quite kind of threatening. So those were the main, main influences, I think, yeah. And Quinn just very recently been sort of rediscovered as well, I think, in a more sort of mainstream way. Yeah, I mean, there was a critical mass of people who've known about her work for a while, people like Lee Rourke, myself, Stuart Holm, uh, and of course, Jennifer Hodgson, who's really been uh, pushing this this rediscovery of Quinn. But yeah, I mean, she didn't write that much. I think there's four novels and a recently compiled collection of short stories and some other work of hers that was lost. But yeah, she was, she was a huge influence on my work. I mean, particularly her first novel, Berg, uh, set in Brighton, is... One of my favourite novels, something I've read several times, um, formerly very experimental, very queer, actually, in, in its use of, um, of sexuality and a woman writing a man who has quite a complex sexuality. Yeah, I'm a really, really big fan of her work. So, yeah, that's definitely, I think, come to bear you know, this what I call like English or British neo-modernism of the 60s and 70s, certainly a huge influence on, on my fiction writing. To finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So this is from a, a story I haven't mentioned yet, but it's one of my absolute favourites. It's called Dancing with the Devil, and it's set in the 1950s. Uh, and I said earlier that every story has this sort of preamble as if written by the editors of the overall variations collection, which gives the kind of context and background detail that you need to know before reading the story. So I'll read that and then go straight into the story. Laura Miller was born in Coventry in 1927. This extract from Dancing with the Devil picks up her story on her return to the UK after three years in New York, where she worked as a cabaret performer, dancer and waitress at the infamous Club 82, operated by the Mafia when gay bars and female impersonation were illegal. She moved to London in 1955 and eventually began a new career as a model. After the events outlined below, she withdrew from public life. Little has been heard from her since she published this memoir in 1970. Click, click, click. I'd become used to the cameras. And in a way, I liked the fact that none of the photographers gave a sailor's cuss about me beyond how I looked. I'd had enough of telling people who I was, what I thought and how I felt, only for them to turn around and insist that I was wrong. Now, once I'd gone through the daily rigmarole of making myself look presentable, my exchanges were simple. I made the face they wanted, they captured it on film. Occasionally, I had to remind myself not to blink on the flash, but that was as hard as it got. Click, click, click. I knew it could become harder at any moment. Someone just had to go to the press. My brother could be rats enough, I often thought, snitching on me to the papers like he always did to my parents. By this point, though, I figured that if he hadn't done it, he probably wouldn't. If he was waiting for my stock to rise further, he was in for a disappointment. The public might not have known my secret, but the industry did. I'd auditioned enough of Britain's actors, so to speak, for word to get around, and I couldn't help wondering if that was the reason why other people move rapidly from non-speaking extra parts to speaking ones to supporting roles when I was never allowed a word on film, after I'd done all that work on my voice too. 
the Wolfenden report hadn't landed yet. And if those actors were wondering about whether sleeping with me made them a pansy, then they were probably worried that it could land them in jail. Perhaps only a few of them boasted about a night in my bed then. But how could I know? Something was holding me back, and it seemed more likely that than anything else. I noticed more than one of my conquistadors bravely avoiding my glance at the Dance with the Devil rap party. One man, though, caught my eye. At first, he looked just like any other suit at these things. The main difference was the way he looked at me, a casual smile that said he was more curious about my soul than my sex. His only distinguishing feature was that he was shorter than all the men and most of the women, not that there were many, and a good six inches shorter than me. It looked like he'd come alone, and he was one of the few people who didn't seem unable or unwilling to approach me. As soon as he said, hello, I'm Frank, I knew something was up. He sounded like his voice never broke. And for a split second, I envied him more than I'd ever envied anyone, before I thought what a nightmare that must have been during his school days. Anyhow, he wasn't unattractive. Smooth skin and slick hair, like a softer Cary Grant, so I held my tongue. Then I wondered, did he know about me? Is he like me? We got talking, and he told me he was setting up a London office for his father's tea business, because his family were thinking of leaving India since independence and the partition because of what he described as Nehru's creeping Bolshevism. He had a calm, gentle manner that put me at ease, and was quite upfront when I asked what brought him to the party. His family were philanthropists, he said, passionate about culture, often putting money into highbrow films like this one. Then he became more interested in me, asking questions that might seem obvious, but hardly any man ever cared to pose. How did I get into the film industry or modelling? Given how charming and beautifully spoken I apparently was, why wasn't I better known? Did I want to be? What were my hopes, ambitions and dreams? We chatted all evening, helped by the copious free booze. All that champagne, I joked, made me feel like Princess Margaret. Frank laughed, and if what he'd already told me didn't make it clear why my remark made him a bit self-conscious, what I saw next did. When the party ended, I offered to take him to my bedsit in Soho, figuring that we'd have more fun than I did on my quiet nights in with fumbling, awkward men. Politely, he suggested his place might be a bit more comfortable, and I wasn't going to argue. It's incredible, really, how near Soho is to Mayfair, and yet, after a short taxi ride, which he covered, aware that being an occasional model and even more occasional film extra wasn't even as glamorous as it looked, we reached the penthouse flat that was the Bolton Taylor Company's main London residence. First, he showed me the roof terrace, pointing out Marble Arch and Hyde Park, saying we couldn't see Buckingham Palace from here, but talking about Queen Liz with such affection that I wondered if they were friends. Then he apologised for the mess inside the apartment, as if mine didn't resemble the aftermath of the Blitz. He had contracts and letters, liberal pamphlets and film magazines, suits in the wardrobe and underwear on the floor, mainly gents but a few ladies, which made me wonder if I was going to become his mistress. After a long chat and plenty more to drink, He took my hand, stroking it. He ran the tips of his fingers up to mine, noticing the polish and running his thumb over my index fingernail. He looked at me and smiled. Sensing his hesitation, I took a chance and drew him to my lips. Suddenly liberated, he started kissing me, and I genuinely thought, hoped, that he would never stop. Then he stroked his hand down my neck, felt my Adam's apple and paused. I thought you knew, I said. I thought you knew, he replied with a strange half-smile. Knew what? He stood, unbuttoned his shirt and took off his belt. I don't know what the word is for it, he said, but I'm seeing a doctor on Harley Street. He let his trousers drop. If only we could have swapped bodies, eh? I put my arm around his shoulders and kissed him. 
I think we both knew that there were many more revelations to come, but they could wait. So I've been talking to Juliet Jakes. We've been talking about her latest collection of short stories, Variations, which is out in the UK from Influx Press. Juliet, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.